The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, September 18th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. As you are, are getting settled this morning, let me ask you a question. I think I know the answer, uh, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, is there anybody who would come in this morning and say that you are already too encouraged in the gospel? Right. Your heart, your life is just hit a saturation point with Jesus. Like just too much encouragement, too much gospel goodness that you're just done. Is that anybody? I don't think so. Um, certainly not me. So that's good news though. And here's why it's good news. It's good news because it means as a people, uh, for as many weeks, years, decades, hopefully generations, that God would give us as a church, we have a target to aim for. To be a people who would become literally just saturated to the point of full uh, with gospel encouragement. And the good news as well is that we have a mentor for the journey in the Apostle Paul. Uh, this is one of the things that I have come to love about the letter that we are studying together, the letter he wrote to the Thessalonian church, the first one, uh, is it is just so full of gospel encouragement uh, that every time we come to a new section, it's just right there again. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and make your way to 1 Thessalonians. What we're going to do this morning is I am going to read the verses that we're going to consider. I'm going to read them all. I want you to follow along. And as you follow along in your Bibles and you, and you hear me read them, I want you to try to feel them. And pay attention to the, the words that I'm reading, the words that he wrote, but I, I want you to hear them a bit like a human and, and feel what Paul is saying. And after that, I'll pray and then we'll, we'll consider these verses for our lives even today. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we will begin in verse 17. And this is what Paul writes. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person but not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come again to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Let me pray for us and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word this morning and we ask that you would give us ears to hear your voice and your encouragement and your grace and the words that you inspired Paul to write to this church. And we ask that you would do it in Jesus' good name. Amen. Could, could, you, could you feel Paul in that? 
Like as you followed along, could, could you sense what was going on in him, in his heart, as he thought about this church? If not, it's okay. I probably could have helped you a little bit by reminding you of the situation that Paul and this church are in. Uh, if you've been with us since we started this journey, or if you're new, let me catch you up. Paul and his team, Apollos, I mean, excuse me, uh, Silas and Timothy, had come into Thessalonica, into the synagogue there, and begun to preach the good news of the gospel, the good news of, of Jesus, declaring that Jesus was indeed king and Lord, not Caesar. And he opened wide his arms to all who would receive him. And for all who would receive him, they would come to know the grace and taste the salvation and forgiveness and mercy of God now and for all of eternity. And we know from the story in Acts that many there did indeed hear the message and receive the good news. Many came, became followers of Jesus, but that made some of the religious leaders there in Thessalonica upset. And those religious leaders, they, they kind of formed a, 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 an unruly group with other people in the city. And they went to the judicial leaders of the city and said that Paul and his team were, were declaring a message that was treasonous in the empire. It was treasonous against Caesar. Caesar was not Lord, was not king, but someone else was because they were frustrated with these people coming to faith in Jesus. And this unruly mob got even more unruly under the authority of the government. So... The brothers there in Thessalonica, they got Paul and his team out of town before it got too hairy. But as Paul left and continued his travels, that unruly group from Thessalonica followed him wherever he went. They continued to stir up antagonism against Paul and against his message. And so Paul, having been separated from this church he'd only been with for a short period of time, he just couldn't bear it any longer, we heard him say, and he needed to know how they were doing in the midst of what was going on. This unruly mob, these leaders had begun whispering rumors and, and slander about Paul and his absence, that he was just one more charlatan on the block coming in, trying to get from them whatever he could, then taking off with no concern for them whatsoever. And so Paul, concerned for their faith in the midst of what they were going through, sent Timothy back to find out how this church was doing. And Timothy returned with a good report. In fact, if I just read one more verse, chapter three, verse six, speaks of Timothy coming back with that good report. He came back with a good report. They're standing firm. And Paul's heart is just bursting with gratitude to God for his calling of the church and for his sustaining of the church. And that gratitude and that joy is what has overflown into this letter that we're reading right now. This is the expression of Paul's response to that good news. And that letter that we're reading now, Timothy is going to take back to this church in just a little while. But the circumstance still remained. There was still an environment of hostility in Thessalonica and contempt for Paul. Rumors and whispers abounded. So, so while we begin the letter, we, we see that as Paul begins to express like his gratitude to God for this church, we, we see that in what we've gone through so far, gratitude to God and joy in response to what God is doing has marked probably 80% of what we've seen so far. Paul has celebrated God's calling of this church, his sustaining of this church. They're receiving God's word in faith and surrendering to it their repentance and their joy, their works of faith, their labors of love, the steadfastness of their hope in Jesus 
Paul is acknowledging God's work in their lives. He's telling them about it. And man, how encouraging is that? In the midst of what they're going through, they're hearing from Paul, I see this. Others see this. God is at work in you. Your life is no longer the same. His grace is sustaining you. His grace is changing you. And Paul is just blowing gospel wind into the sails of their faith. And that's marked the majority of this letter. Paul is just pointing out the the threads and the elements of a culture that the gospel builds amongst God's people. And we've been reminded to, to open up our eyes and to be ever aware and looking for the evidences of God's grace at work in the lives of our brothers and sisters. But like I said, that that contempt for Paul still remained. And so in the letter, as we've already seen, he, he addressed some of the rumors and some of the slander, and Paul doesn't always do that, but for the sake of this church's faith, he, he felt it important to deal with. And so a few weeks ago, we saw how he kind of drifted into talking about these reports, and he was reminding them of what they experienced from him and from Silas and from Timothy when they were with them. I know what the rumors are. I know what the whispers are. I know what they're trying to say. But remember what you experienced. Remember what we were like. Remember how we labored amongst you. How we sought to not exploit you, but serve you. How we lived with you. Remember what you know to be true. In the face of all all the temptation and all the whispers and all the wondering, remember. And now as as we pick the letter back up, Paul is coming back to dealing with some of the the elements of these rumors and whispers that are going on. But this time, it's not going to be remember what it was like when we were with you. It's trying to explain his heart for the people while he's absent from them. Because according to the rumors, Paul was just one more charlatan coming in and leaving. And his absence said nothing more than he didn't care about him. He got what he wanted and now he's gone. Where is he? He's like every other traveling speaker that's come through this place. I tell you of all the rumors and all the the slander and all the innuendo going on in that time, I would imagine that this is one of the ones that hurt the most. This is one of the ones that was probably, I'm I'm just guessing, but probably one of the ones that was probably the hardest for the Apostle Paul. And so this morning in in the verses that I read and that we're going to consider, Paul is coming back to this reality and and he's going to address these. And here's our challenge this morning. We're going to see and hear Paul's heart split wide open. We're going to get let in on some of the deepest things going on in the Apostle Paul when he thinks about this church And our task is to discern together how the very real words that God inspired Paul to write to this very real church centuries ago, going through a very real situation in a very real context, how those words are meant to be instructive, encouraging, and illustrative even for our life now together. This was a real situation a real man and a a real people in a a real difficult time. And together we're going to look to see what the Apostle Paul's heart for this church has to say to help us 
in our day and in our time now. So that's what we're going to do to try to tease out from Paul's words some of the elements of this gospel-born reality that God creates amongst his people. And the first thing that we're going to look at, probably what we'll see for the bulk of our time or spend most of our time on, because it dominates the entire ethos of what Paul is writing, is you can't read these verses and come away not recognizing and beginning to even feel and sense Paul's affection for this church. The depth and the nature of his affection for these people. I mean, you can feel it as you read through it slowly. Phrases and words, sentences piling on top of each other, almost like they're tripping over each other, trying to get out of Paul's heart and into this letter for the people. It's just on and on and on again. And so we're going to take a few minutes, and I just want to stack them up on top of each other for you to begin to see and feel this affection, and then we'll consider where this affection comes from. But verse 17, Paul even kind of begins this new direct address in the letter by saying, since we were torn away from you, brothers... Now, that means one thing to us, and we read, oh, that's a bad situation, but what they would have heard when it was read was, since we were orphaned from you. That's what the word actually means. And when someone was orphaned, it could have been seen from the perspective either of the child or the parent. It could be a child that was taken from his parents, but from the perspective of the parent, it's parents who had their child taken from them. Paul already talking about how he has loved this church like a mom caring for her nursing child and a dad always seeking to direct and encourage and exhort them in their life now says that having not been with you, I feel like you've been taken from me, torn apart from you, orphaned from you. I mean, that is a visceral picture. Parents, imagine some of you sitting here clutching your children, even as we're talking. Someone coming and taking them out of your hands and from you. Paul is saying, this is the depth of my affection for you. This is what it feels like to not be with you right now as you're going through this. And these rumors are swirling. We've been torn, orphaned from you. For a short time in person, but not in heart. Right? We're absent from you physically, but you're never out of our heart. I mean, I imagine, again, the visceral, again, you've got to see it, the visceral picture he's painting. If someone were to come into the room and take your child from you and tear them from your arms and remove them from you physically, even in the worst of situations, they wouldn't be out of your heart. They would never leave your mind. You would be in agony over their well-being and what was going on. This is the depth of the affection that Paul has for God's people here in Thessalonica. This church had Paul's heart, even if they they didn't have his face. And this really, it wasn't super unique to this church in relation to Paul. Paul spoke this way about a number of churches that he had the pleasure and the, and the responsibility of loving and serving. In fact, in the church in, in Colossae, Paul would say, even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit. Right? This is the depth of his affection. Can you feel it? The picture he's painting, this is how deep his affection is. Well, he keeps stacking things on. 
Like if that's not enough, that's a pretty vivid, visceral picture of the depth of his love, right? But then he goes on to say, just keep reading. We endeavored all the more. We endeavored all the more, all excessively, abundantly. That's what all the more means. There's an abundance or an excessiveness to it. We endeavored all the more eagerly. He adds another word in there, eagerly. We're in a hurry with this. We're longing to do this. It, it carries the picture of doing something with such, to such a degree that you're short of breath. Like there's an abundance in this and, a, and an intensity to this and an eagerness to this and with great desire. Great passion. Literally great over passion. The determining passion, Paul's saying, the driving passion, the fierce passion that is going on in us is producing this. I have this fierce driving passion pushing us in abundant and excessive eagerness to see you face to face. And that's a rich biblical picture in itself. We take this for granted when we say face to face, but in the biblical sense, in the biblical picture, to see someone face to face was to communicate a, a openness, a connectedness, a transparency, an intimacy that was desired and reciprocated. It was Moses who said, God, let me see your face, right? And God said, no, you can't do that. You can, you can see another part of me. What Moses wanted was this intimacy, this connectedness, this openness. And this is what Paul was saying. There is this overwhelming passion, driving, determining passion in me that is all the more eager and longing and pushing in an abundant and excessive way to see you face to face. That's an affection. Can you, can you feel it? Does it, does it make any sense? Can you see it? Well, he's not done. Look at verse 19. If that didn't make them feel loved... Paul says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Now Paul just jumps to that day when Jesus comes back. He's going straight to the return of Jesus. And he says, what is our joy? Ask that question 10 times. This is not the answer you'll get. What's your joy on that day? What's your crown on that day? What's your, what's your ground of boasting on that day? This is not the anticipated answer. Which is why scholars like John Stott and F.F. F. Bruce are so helpful to the church. Stott said we have to read these words and we must not interpret Paul's glory in the Thessalonians in a way which conflicts with his affirmations that he will glory only in Christ and his cross. Here's why. The Thessalonians are trophies of Christ crucified. What Paul means in this transport of love, and what a phrase, this transport of love is that his joy in this world and his glory in the next are tied up with the Thessalonians, whom Christ, through the apostles' ministry, has so signally transformed. F.F. Bruce says it this way, this church was preaching the cross with their lives. God's word was at work in them, enabling them by his spirit to believe and obey. So the focus of Paul's hope and joy is not merely their perseverance, but 
the sovereign power of God at work, the evidence of his work and grace Paul is ever eager to identify and celebrate. So Paul is thinking about them now, and he can't help but think ahead and think to that day when Jesus returns, when the king returns, when his kingdom is going to be fully, fully, and finally established. And on that day, Paul sees them present with him at Jesus' feet. And their presence will be his joy. Their presence, God having called them from eternity past, shed his love on them, sustained them to that day, their presence is going to be Paul's joy. And you have to be careful that we're not just talking about joy, the emotion here. This word joy, it comes from the same word we get rejoicing. This is less about feeling and emotion and more about what you do in the presence of God. Paul says, on that day when I see you at the feet of Jesus and I'm right there with you remembering our love together, our, our labor together, my rejoicing is going to be in him saving you and sustaining you and that you're here right with me. Paul's joy, even looking forward to that day, is tied up in his affection for this people. I mean, can you feel it? Like it, it is it becoming a little more clear? Right, he's far from dismissive. That's the rumor. He doesn't care. He left you. Where is he? Why isn't he here? He can't be trusted. He doesn't love you. Discredit the man, you can discredit his message. And Paul says it's anything but the truth. You feel his affection. When I could stand it no longer, he's going to say. Like when I could not stand not knowing how you were doing in the midst of these rumors and persecution and affliction, I couldn't take it anymore. My heart is, is so tied to yours. Friends, this affection that we see on display in the Apostle Paul is, is not an affection that is simply reserved for super apostles like Paul. Like we read it and we think, well, that's Paul, right? But the affection that Paul is giving language to in this situation, in this very specific, acute situation in the history of the church, the language that Paul is giving to these people is simply reflective of an affection that is meant to be growing and deepening and true amongst all of God's people together, amongst the church. And it's there, if we're really honest, we, we tend to trip over ourselves a little bit. I, I, won't, I won't out the pastor because it's certainly not reflective of his ministry, but he was being very honest and he was trying to capture what he feels like most people in his church were thinking when they thought about the church. And he said it would be nice to get the feeling of solid, magnificent corporate worship without all of these obnoxious, insensitive people. Right, if only we could have the church without the people. We laugh, but there's probably a little more truth to that in our hearts than we want to admit. In fact, I've got this t-shirt my family always laughs at. And 
One time, for those of you that have been around for a while, when I was shooting video updates during COVID on Fridays, I wore it. I don't really think about those videos. I just I wore the shirt. And it's the only time in 15 years I've ever gotten an email about what I wear. Watch the videos. I only wear three things. Every single week. It's one of three things. But I, I got an, an email about this shirt. It's a t-shirt. It says, I like coffee and maybe three people. <laughs> there are four people in my house besides me. <laughs> so whenever I put the shirt on and come downstairs, I'm not thinking about it, but someone always asks me, am I on the list today? <laughs> and it's a joke, it's funny, but if I'm going to be really honest, there's a, there's a ring of truth to it. I mean, more than I ever really want to admit, there's a ring of truth to it. It might not be three people. It might be a few more, and some days it might be a little less, but it's there. So how do we deal with that? If this affection that we hear spilling out from the Apostle Paul for a people he didn't know very long, let's be real. He spent years with other churches. Scholars aren't exactly sure how long he was here, but they know it was less than a year. Most likely only a few months. Yet here, this is his affection for this people. And if that affection is not reserved for super apostles like Paul, but it's meant to be true and growing in the church, where does that kind of affection come from? Well, Paul gives us a clue to its source even in writing the letter way back in verse 17 where we started and when he addressed these people as his brothers. Even when he addressed them in chapter 1 as brothers loved by God. You see, like himself, Paul knew that these men and women had been called by God through the grace and good news of the gospel. The news of the love and mercy of God that extended all the way back in eternity and all the way forward for all of eternity. They had been caught up in it. See, friends, it's not our preferences that unite us as a people. It's not our political persuasions. None of those things are meant to unite and sustain God's people and give rise to the kind of affection that we see on display in this letter. It is only the gospel of God's grace and the gospel of God's grace alone that can unite, establish, and sustain the kind of affection that we hear from Paul's heart for a people who were once faced with eternal lostness. Or as he will say to the church in Ephesus, those who were dead in sin and trespass. Those who left to themselves were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, among whom we all once lived. This was us, all of us. And all that we would do was live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind without God and without hope in this world. Friends, that's the Bible's description of every single one of us apart from this grace. And without this grace that Paul is so eager to celebrate, 
If you think about that day that he's already jumped forward to when he thinks about being at the feet of Jesus with this church, without that grace, that day when Jesus returns as king and as judge, without God and without hope in this world, without his grace, on that day, all that we will have to stand before that king and that judge with is our own sin and trespass. That's it. It's not a day to look forward to. Which is why if you go read Ephesians chapter 2, Paul immediately says, but God. Arguably the, the two best words back to back in the Bible. Because that previous description was true of all of us. True of Paul. True of this church in Thessalonica. True of you. True of me. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, Paul tells him, you've been saved. God took those who were dead in their sin and trespasses and made them alive, and he did it through his son. The wisdom of God made a way for his love, his rich love and mercy Paul talks about. He made a way for his love to satisfy the justice of his wrath and holiness. He made a way for that love to satisfy that judgment and that wrath without compromising even an iota of God's integrity and character and holiness. And he did it through his son. He sent his son to live the life that we were created to live, a life of delight and joy in the Father, a delight of perfect obedience to the Father's will. And for that life, he substituted himself on the cross and he took upon himself our sin and our trespass. And in his body on the cross, he who knew no sin, literally Paul will later say, became sin for us. God's justice and wrath for our sin he put upon his son, not holding anything back. And he accepted his son's sacrifice in our place for our sins three days later when he raised him from the dead. And Paul is saying for all who would hear, God opens wide his arms and invites anyone to come and to receive his son. To believe into his son for forgiveness and salvation, or as Paul will say over and over in his letters, for life and life abundantly. You have been saved by grace through faith. And that is not your own doing. Even the desire and the unction to believe in Jesus Paul says, has been for you a gift from God, not a result of anything that you've done so that you and no one else can boast. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection open wide the doors to salvation, redemption, forgiveness, being justified before God on that day. And everyone Everyone who will stand before Jesus as king and as judge, having placed their confidence and faith in him, got to that place the same way. Didn't matter where you were born, the family you were born into, the place where you were born, the time period you were born in, 
all come to him the same way, by grace, through faith in Jesus. And Paul has spent his life saying anyone can get in on that grace. Well, just believe. Just believe. That, my friends, is the ground. That is the source. That is the sustaining power. That is the ongoing emboldening of the kind of affection that we see pouring out of Paul's heart for a people that he's only known for a short time, but he has more in common with them than anyone else in his blood biological family walking on the face of the earth. Paul will later write, we who were once far off have been brought near, near to God through Jesus' blood. Which is why he'll say in Romans 15, Jesus has welcomed us into himself. If there's not a better picture of this affection, it's that Jesus welcomed, opened wide his arms, opened up his heart, opened up his life, and welcomed us into it by his grace. That's what it means. The affection of God, born out of the richness of his mercy, out of his character, shown to us through his son, opening wide his life to the point of death to receive us and bring us in. That, my friends, is what establishes and encourages and sustains the kind of affection that God intends for his people, which is why Paul says in Romans 15, as we have been welcomed by Jesus, we're going to welcome one another. It's not just a, a saying hi on the front steps. It's an opening wide. Opening wide the heart. Opening wide the life. Affection for those who too have been saved by grace. This kind of affection in a gospel-oriented, gospel-born, gospel-deepening church is, is going to show itself. There's going to be evidences of it. It's not always going to be rich and flourishing, but it's going to be growing. Because there are going to be very real times that if you're honest with yourself, my t-shirt is more representative of your feeling than what Paul's writing. And I know in my own life when it's more true of me than I want it to be that I do like coffee and maybe three people. It's because the lens of my heart has been focused back upon myself and the way that I see you and the way that I see others in my life is only through the lens of, of how whatever you are or however you live or whatever you have would serve whatever I'm focused on for myself, right? And so one of the things the gospel does when it takes root in the life of a people is it begins to change the way we see. It begins to change the lens over the eyes of our heart and not just change the way we see the circumstances we're in, but it changes the way we see the people next to us brothers and sisters who came through the same door of grace to the feet of Jesus that we did. Nobody came in through a side door. No one had a secret access. All of us were dependent on the grace of God shown to us through his son to find ourselves at this place. And now he has created and is sustaining a bond between us that is more eternal and thicker than any biological bond that we have with anyone else. And as the gospel continues to take root deeper and deeper in the hearts and lives of God's people in a place like this, born out of his grace, these bonds of affection and the fruits of this affection will be seen more and more. But as we've had to see over and over again, we're going to have to have eyes to see it, to look for it, 
But that is one of the chief marks, traits, elements of the kind of culture the gospel brings to bear in the life of a people born out of a confidence in God's grace. But that's not it. I've run out of time, but we're going to keep going. No, I really haven't, though. I haven't. You might want me to stop, but I haven't run out of time. Right. We have to be aware that of this affection that we see and that is born out of the gospel, right? It's always going to face opposition. There's always going to be opposition. Right? It happens right here in verse 18. And Paul says, we, we wanted to come to you. I, I Paul, it just personalizes it now. I'm not even speaking just for Timothy and, and, and Silas. I'm talking about myself. I, Paul, again and again, I wanted to see you, but Satan hindered us. And again, this is really strong language he's using here to describe the opposition that his affection for these people faced when he wanted to get back to him, right? This hindering is actually, a, it's a military picture. It's a military word. It, it would be used of a situation or a time when maybe you and your company would destroy the road or the access point to a place you didn't want the enemy to get to. It's like burning the boats, right? We're here, you're not getting here, and that's it. Sabotaging the way there. Paul doesn't get into the details of what that actually looked like, so we shouldn't speculate on what the details of that actually looked like, but Paul was aware the battle that was at stake was for the faithfulness of the church and that there is an enemy who seeks to shipwreck the faith of God's people. That's why Paul, throughout Paul's letters in the scriptures, he'll be referred to as an adversary. An adversary of God, an adversary of his people. In a few verses in chapter three, we already read them, we find the tempter doing what he does best, tempting God's people. That's his specialty. He tempts us with sin, and when we take the bait, when we swallow it, he's right there ready to condemn us for what we've done. We find ourselves in difficult times. We find ourselves suffering. We find ourselves going through a hard situation and he's right there tempting us to believe distortions about God's character, distortions about God's faithfulness, distortions about the steadfastness of God's love. But here's what I want you to notice. For, for Paul, what's instructive for us and even illustrative for us is that Paul was aware that there was an opposition to the joy of the church. And most importantly, Paul knew what was at stake. Paul knew what was at stake in this battle. And it's his love and it's affection that you see kind of overflowing in what he's saying. And it's a reminder to us to, I don't know how else to say it, but to be very careful to not allow ourselves and allow one another to, to fall asleep at the wheel of this life. We have an adversary. We have one who is the enemy of our joy and of our confidence and of our faith in Christ. One who seeks to divide God's people and distort God's character. As the gospel takes root in the heart of God's people and in the heart of a, a local church like this, it, yes, it produces this kind of affection and it strengthens the bonds that we see here, but it also begins to open up a, a greater awareness of the fact that we have opposition to our joy. And we're going to have to become aware of his, of his tactics and his presence and his schemes to rob us of our joy. Right? So there's an awareness of this opposition that exists as well as this growing affection that's there. And, and then there's more. Look what he says. So he starts chapter 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. 
And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. You see, when Paul recognized, this is fascinating, Paul recognized that the opposition hindering him was satanic, right? And when he recognized this, that it was getting in the way of, of his desire to help this church, to strengthen this church, to be with this church, to express his affection, he called an audible. He didn't just go, oh well, maybe next time. He called an audible. He sent Timothy, right? He said, Timothy can go, and Timothy can be there for this church. And let me just say this real quick, because we don't have a lot of time to, to spend on this, but <clears throat> you should give props to Timothy for this, right? This was not an easy task Timothy was endeavoring. You know why? I mean, I mean again, read it a bit like a human. Who did they want to see? They wanted to see Paul. Right? They're going through all of this. It's Paul that's being dragged through the mud. They're the ones who are suffering the loss of reputation, some even life, for following Jesus. Who do they want to see come back and be with them? It's, it's Paul. And who do they get? They get Timothy. Now, as you read it, recognize that when Paul writes this letter, Timothy has already gone to the church, encouraged them, seen their faith, come back, given Paul this good report. Now, Paul is writing this letter, and he's going to send Timothy back with this letter, but he adds in a couple commendations. Timothy is our brother. He's God's co-worker. Why would Paul add those in? Well, Timothy, no doubt, probably came back and said, you know, they're a little disappointed it's me right? They're actually, they're looking for you. They, they, they want you. And Paul wants the church to realize that in the mission that God has given his people, there are no JV players. Timothy was no bench player in this thing. God's desire for each of his children to grow into the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ requires partnerships amongst all of God's people that are forged and born in the same gospel of grace that forges and sustains the affection that exists between God's people. That's why Paul will later tell the church in Corinth, whether it's Paul, whether it's Apollos, it doesn't even matter. Whether it's Timothy, whether it's Silas, it doesn't matter who it is. We sow, we water, we tend. It's God that gives all the fruit and it's God that gives all the growth. You don't just need me. I'm sending Timothy to make every effort to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. To continue to establish and strengthen and build you up in Jesus. To exhort and to encourage, to put that wind of gospel goodness in the sails of your faith, to to be there to do this, that you would stand. That in the midst of whatever may come, you won't be moved. You won't be shifted. Your confidence won't move from all that God is for you in Jesus into something else out of fear of what it might cost you. That you won't be shipwrecked. Your faith won't be shipwrecked. Friends, Paul wanted the church to know then as much as we need to understand now that all of us are involved and all of us are necessary in the ongoing fortification of our faith. It takes all of us. God is at work in all of his people. And it's the privilege and responsibility that we have to one another. It's not just the responsibility of super apostles. 
It's not just the responsibility of pastors. It's not just the responsibility of staff or, or ministry leaders. We've all been given this privilege and this responsibility together. I mean, here's the thing. I, 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 I need you to help me keep my eyes on Jesus when they wander. And my eyes are just as prone to wander as yours. I need you to put that wind of gospel encouragement into the sails of my faith when my confidence and my faith in the promises of God begins to drag. Friends, I don't want to be another sad pastoral statistic. There's too many of them already. I know too many of them. And what Paul is reminding the church in Thessalonica is as true for them as it is true for us. It takes all of us to strengthen and encourage our confidence in Jesus that we not be moved. The question becomes, do we actually love one another enough to do what it takes to encourage and strengthen? What it will mean is that our conversations will drastically begin to shift some. There won't be as much space and as much time for ongoing conversations about our houses, our vacations, our jobs, all of those things. They're good things. They're not bad things. They're good things that God gives us to enjoy, and as we enjoy them and use them for the enjoyment of others, we're reminded they were gifts from God and they become opportunities of worship. But the space for those things begins to be narrowed because we're more aware of what's at stake. And we're more aware of what is opposing us. And we want to make all the more effort together because it takes all of us together to establish our confidence in Jesus in the midst of a world in which we live. To exhort and to fill the sails of our faith with encouragement in Jesus as we face the very pressures that we face throughout a day. Some things about how we interact and engage will, will have to change as we begin to understand the privilege and the responsibility that we have with each other and for each other's joy. And I don't have a, a, a technique to give you or a, a book that points out the technique to go about doing this, but I can tell you that this kind of interdependent fortification of, of faith is it's the fruit of a, of a gospel-cultivated culture that's beginning to see one another differently through the lenses of the gospel, brothers and sisters, recognizing the responsibility and the privilege that we have to encourage and, and establish that one another might stand and be sustained in the face of all the pressures that we have, and we'll figure out ways to go about doing it. We'll trust God for the confidence and the courage to take the steps forward to be able to shift the conversation maybe, shift the focus maybe, to help one another find deepest and lasting joy in the goodness and kindness of God and Jesus. Because as we said at the beginning, who, who's, who's ever been too encouraged in Jesus? Right? Who, who, who's ever been oversaturated in gospel encouragement, right? right can we make that our, our goal? Can we make that the end to which the story of this church looks? However long God gives us together, that we, we are trusting and working for one another's joy and saturation and gospel confidence, right? This 
interdependent fortification. It, it's all the more necessary, right? As Paul ends this little section, and I'll end it this morning, because of the present and very pressing power of affliction. We've said it over and over. I don't have to belabor it this morning. He wanted to establish and exhort the church in their confidence in Jesus that they not be moved by afflictions. And what I want you to recognize is what he says next. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it's come to pass and just as you know. The reality that it costs to follow Jesus. The reality that it takes one another to continue to establish and encourage our hearts and our faith in the promises of Jesus. The reality that it's going to hurt at times. Do you realize Paul just said that is a first principle in his teaching? He was with them only a short matter of time, but he made sure to tell them, don't be surprised. Don't get caught off guard. It's going to cost you. Already they had lost social reputation. Already they had lost relationships. Already they had lost jobs. Already some were beginning to lose their life or their physical well-being because of their identification with Jesus. And Paul told them from the very beginning, don't be surprised. This is the way it's going to be. Jesus has said the same thing. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said they're going to deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death, and you'll be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. Right? Paul, just like Jesus, didn't want his people to be caught off guard and surprised because he didn't want them to find themselves in a situation where their confidence and their faith in Jesus is going to get moved in the presence of such affliction and their faith shipwrecked. It was so important. Paul dealt with it in the very beginning and we can't shy away from it. If anything in our world, at least in this culture, we've, we've gone too far away from this reality and you can't shy away from this reality. If you are going to identify with Jesus and allow your heart and your life and your tastes and your thoughts and your passions and your actions to be shaped and influenced by his word and by his purposes, it is going to cost you. I don't know what it's going to cost you, but it's going to cost you at some point. Don't be surprised. Paul wanted the church to be prepared, which is why it was so important to him and he loved so much the opportunity to be able to help establish, further strengthen, and encourage the faith of God's people. He didn't want them off guard. So here, here we'll, we'll just say it this way so I can, I can pray. Here, when the gospel takes root and the gospel begins to run wild in a church. It's doing the work of cultivating a people. A people whose affection for one another is going deeper than the affection and the bonds of biology itself. A people who are more aware of the opposition at hand to their faith and to their joy. A people who are increasingly committed to fortifying one another's confidence in God and his promises as they together prepare to lose or to suffer whatever may come 
Why? Because together they are helping one another to believe in their heart that Jesus truly is better. That Jesus really is worth it. I don't know about you, but my prayer, and I, I hope you will join me in praying, my, my prayer is that this would be increasingly true of us in the days and the years to come. That this kind of gospel fruit would be born as we continue to keep our eyes focused on Jesus and the good news of God's grace to us. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to respond to God's word in a rhythm that we've been doing together for a number of years. We're going to give you a moment to just consider God's word and how God might be calling you to respond to him, what he by his spirit may be doing in your heart. And then for those who have believed upon Jesus in in hope and faith with their whole life for joy and salvation, you're going to be invited to come forward to receive communion remembering his sacrifice in your place for your sin. And what you're doing when you come forward is you are physically declaring by that action, taking that bread, dipping it in that cup, you are declaring that God's promises to you in his son. You are declaring your confidence in those promises. And you are declaring that those promises are more to be desired than the world itself. If you're here this morning and you would say that that's not true of you, there's nothing more that we want for you than for you to see and begin to enjoy the grace of God in Christ. We want to help you do that. And the first thing that we can encourage you to do as you see people come forward and begin to receive communion is to ask God to help you see it. Ask him to help you see the magnitude of his kindness and grace towards you. And as we begin to come forward and receive communion, the music's going to begin to play and we're going to sing. And with our voices now, we're going to declare our confidence in God's promises as we sing, he will hold me fast. Even though there are times when I fear my faith will fail, when I fear the tempter, the enemy will prevail, times when I feel like I can't keep my hold, He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. We are going to declare that confidence in God's promises to one another as we sing, and then we're going to be sent out from here. So let me pray, and then we'll continue. Father, you need to do by your Holy Spirit what only you can do through this word to make us into a people or to people who who have these kinds of bonds of affection that are born out of an awareness of your grace, who are seeing each other through a new lens, seeing each other through the lens in which you see us. Make us sharply aware of the opposition that stands in our way, in our affection, who stands in in trying to shipwreck our joy and confidence in you. But Lord, help give us the boldness and the courage to be a people who spend our time and spend our days to help strengthen and encourage one another in our confidence and our faith in your promises that when opposition comes, that when difficulty comes, that when it costs for being yours, we're not moved. We're not shipwrecked. We're not surprised. We're not caught off guard. We're fortified, steadfast, confident in you. Lord, it takes your spirit through your word to do that work in us. And so we ask that you would do it for Jesus' name and our joy. Amen. 
You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.